All right. The first part of this has some historical background, but uh, I will try not to make it a dry history lesson for you. I think it's important for, for us to understand with regard to our church covenant why churches have church covenants, where they came from, some of those sorts of things in order to properly uh, evaluate if there's changes that we ought to think about with regard to ours. So, let's start a little bit with the history of church covenants. Churches in America have been using church covenants for a long time. And Baptists, uh, as early as perhaps the late 1600s, there's a fellow named Leon Macbeth who wrote a book called Baptist Heritage, Four Centuries of Baptist Witness, and he mentions a church in Kittery, and they adopted a church covenant in 1682. This was not, however, unique to Baptists. It was something that the Puritans were doing even before that. And so, for example, um, uh, it's a, this quote here says, Although rooted in theological speculation, the covenant ideal had many applications in America. American Congregationalists wanted to organize churches pleasing to God and free from all Episcopal trappings. From the individual covenant of grace, they deduced the corporate church covenant whereby the believers would band together to carry out their covenant responsibilities. All right, so along these lines, um, there's handouts in the back there. Uh, along these lines, covenant theology in a very basic and simple form teaches something like this. It would look at the biblical data and see in the biblical data a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. And there would be connection points to the law, to the gospel, and so forth. And um, so if we are, if, if a church was seeing these as the organizing principles for the structure of the Old Testament, for example, and, and coming into the New Testament, then it would make sense that the reasoning would be something like this. God made covenants with Israel. So, I think it's clear from the Old Testament that God made covenants with Israel, right? Series of promises. We're going to look at one of them next week, starting with the Abrahamic covenant, the uh, discussions that he has with Moses with regard to the law, the keeping or the breaking of the law, the promises that he makes to David in the book of Samuel, so on and so forth, right? So, God makes these series of promises to the nation of Israel. There is discussion over, for example, whether these covenants are conditional or unconditional. In other words, 
Does God only keep those promises as long as the people He makes the promises to keep their end of it? We're not going to go into all of that this morning. I'm just trying to lay some of this out as backdrop. But the Puritans, for example, would say God made promises to Israel. They would see themselves as uh, perhaps a new Israel. It's a common way of speaking in the Puritan thought that the church is the new Israel. And so if the church is the new Israel and God had made covenants with the old Israel, then there is a precedent for us making covenants as well. God made promises to His people. His people make promises to one another about the sorts of things that they ought to do as a member of God's people. Uh, with regard to this, um, the, the thing that I think we ought to question might be, we ought to at least think about is this point right here. Is the church the new Israel? Is the church the new Israel? Okay. What would be some thoughts going into your answer? Okay. All right. So let's let's make some comparison and contrast here. So Paul, you're saying Israel was a nation. Okay. Okay. Um, so we could say family or bloodline. What about the church? Is the church one ethnicity, one nation, one specific family of people descended from a particular person? Okay, no, I think we would say, um, and Revelation 5.9 I don't think is exclusively talking about the church, but it does talk about the idea that God is going to have praise from people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so it's not just the people, the Jewish people, but in the church, uh, you have examples of people from all different sorts of backgrounds. Uh, Paul, when he talks about Colossians, um, there's Jew versus barbarian, slave versus free, and all of that. He's saying there's all of these, from a human perspective, distinctions within the church. The church is composed of a different group of people than the nation of Israel. What else is different between... Israel and the church, or what else is the same? Okay. And what about for Christians today? Do we follow the Mosaic Law? Okay. Uh, we'll talk in our passage tonight in the book of James. Uh, we saw it mentioned last week, the law of liberty, and we'll, uh, we'll discuss in more detail what that has reference to. But we do not, for example, um, we're, uh, we're not under the Mosaic law for purposes of, say, making sacrifices, right? Or for purposes of government rulings. And some people will say, well, but 
but let's divide the law into moral, civil, and ceremonial. Have you all heard that? Here's the tension. James speaks of the law in the passage we'll look at tonight as a single unit. He says if you violate one command, tenet, principle of the law, you've broken the whole law. So I'm not sure that we can subdivide the law into this had to do with civil things, this had to do with sacrificial things, and this had to do with moral things. The law was a unit which Christ fulfilled. We'll talk more tonight about what's our relationship to God's law, generally speaking. But the church is not under the law in the same way that the people of Israel were. What are some other features of uh, the church or of Israel that um, we should think about? Yes. I, I would say that we don't from the perspective of, um, so there's a couple of different ways of looking at it. I think that the concept of Sabbath is not done away with because Hebrews says there's a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And so I think God's original intent in establishing a Sabbath was to anticipate that future heavenly rest. I don't, I mean, we don't practice meeting on Saturdays, for example. We, we meet on Sundays following the custom of the early church. And I think part of the reason the early church felt the freedom to do so, although there was a time period where Jewish people were doing both. Jewish church members were both going to the synagogue on Sabbath and gathering for church on Sunday. I believe there's evidence of that in the New Testament. That being said, it wasn't a requirement for the Gentiles, and I don't believe it was a requirement for us today. Because if you look at the commands of the Old Testament, the concepts are repeated. That specific command is not repeated for the church in the New Testament. So, I mean, Jesus says things, broadly speaking, or Paul says things that uphold uh, parts of the Ten Commandments like don't commit adultery. But there's not a specific you must follow the Sabbath kind of command like there is from the Old Testament. So, again, I think th this does not mean that Christians, people in the church are without law, that there's nothing that we ought to do. It just simply means we're not under the Mosaic law. What about how you become a part of either of these two? Go ahead, Paul. Okay. Yeah, so we could say human priests, and we could say Jesus here, okay? Um, what about how you became a part of either of these two? How do you become a part of the nation of Israel? Yeah, so birth and then the, the sign of being a part of the nation of Israel was at least for the males this idea of circumcision. The church, you become a part of the church by faith, by the work of the Spirit, and the sign of it is baptism. Now people have tried to draw a parallel between circumcision and baptism, but there's, I think, I think there's enough biblical evidence to distinguish the two that I don't think that we can say Baptism is the New Testament equivalent of Old Testament circumcision. Uh, 
Any other similarities or differences between the church and Israel? What was the purpose or the mission of Israel? Okay. What's the purpose of the church? Okay. So there is some continuity or... Uh, so when we look at these sorts of things, people will throw out, especially in theological literature, this idea of continuity, what's the same, discontinuity, what's different. All right. Sometimes what happens is we want to overemphasize the things that are different. Sometimes we want to overemphasize the things that are the same. Uh, for example, C.I. Schofield. How many of you are familiar with the Schofield Reference Bible? Okay. There were a number of things that he said that were good. Sometimes, in his effort to draw a line between Israel and the church, he talked in ways that at least made it sound like there's two ways of getting saved. That the Jews got saved by keeping the law and that people today get saved by trusting in Jesus. But I think that there is evidence from the scripture that people in the Old Testament did not keep the law in order to be saved, but as a sign that they were in a right relationship with God. So people in the Old Testament weren't saved by keeping the law. Paul makes that very clear in Romans. They were saved by faith, just like Abraham was saved by faith, Romans chapter 4. People today are saved by faith. And there's actually in Galatians, it says, in that sense, you are children of Abraham if you have the same kind of faith. Now, the kid's song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, I'm one of them and so are you. Not true in a physical sense, right? Not true necessarily even a spiritual sense in the way of saying Israel equals the church, but rather that the same faith that Abraham had is the same sort of faith that we're supposed to have. Do we have more information and more knowledge from the perspective of all that's been revealed about Christ since that time? Yes. But we're still trusting in the same person in God through His Son. So, with regard to this central point here, that the church, we are the new Israel, which was one of the ideas that I think the Puritans put forth and sometimes has come up in churches since then, do we think that that one was true? I think we would have to say, no, we are not the new Israel. So, this is definitely true. God did make covenants with Israel. And this may be true, that we can or should make covenants or promises with and to one another. But we would have to have a different reason as the connection point between those things. For example, God bound his people with covenants so that they would take um, seriously their responsibilities and we can make covenants or promises to help us take those responsibilities seriously. Something like that. So we could say the middle point is taking obedience seriously. So this would be an acceptable one. This one I don't think is a valid link between these two. Does that make sense? Okay. So like what it says in uh, 1 Corinthians 11? Um, this blood is my 
Let me pull my Bible out and read exactly what it says. This is one of those things that came up in my reading with connection to this. He says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this and often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So, in Jeremiah it speaks of a new covenant. In this passage and some others in the New Testament, there's a description of a new covenant. So, who is the new covenant for? Is it for the church? Is it for Israel? Is it for Israel, but the church gets to share in it? I'm just raising the question. I'm not going to try to answer it this morning because that's like, I've been to whole day seminars on it that didn't fully answer the question for me. So, uh, essentially, there would be a discussion among theologians. First of all, would we hold the covenant theology as in covenant of works, covenant of grace? Would we see a series of dispensations, starting with creation and government and so on and so forth, law and grace? Would we see some sort of hybrid between the two of those? And where, how does the new covenant connect to all of those? And my short answer would be, I'm not sure that I could fully explain that to you at this point accurately, completely, and clearly. I would say that when Christ says, this is the new covenant in my blood, there is a, there is in some sense a, and I, and I have to choose my words carefully here, I think if I had to pick between the options I laid out for you, I would say the new covenant was intended for Israel, but God's people in the church get to share in it from the perspective of what it says in Romans that we've been grafted in to share in the blessings of God's people and to tie in with what we're going to look at next week in Genesis 12, where it says there will be land, seed, and blessing coming through the nation of Israel to all nations. We're sort of coming at it like this. We're not part of it as like by inheritance, but we're part of it by God's grace and being adopted in and being grafted in and that sort of thing. So that's my quick answer to that. Um, so, moving on a little bit further in the notes... Um, so we've covered the first three paragraphs there. Next paragraph, Piper says this about the typical, uh, it says current structure, it should say covenant structure in Baptist churches. Um, among Baptist and other congregationally governed churches, the local church constitution generally contains an affirmation of faith and a church covenant. The church covenant describes a core set of biblical expectations relating to how members live, while the affirmation of faith describes a core of biblical expectations relating to what members believe. As a general rule, therefore, the expectations of the church covenant along with the affirmation of faith function as prerequisites for church membership. So, statement of faith, what we believe, statement of covenant, what we've committed to do. Theoretically, those two things should be tied closely together. You shouldn't have we should do these things, but they're not in the statement of faith or they contradict the statement of faith, right? And then further in that chapter, Piper argues that adding extra biblical regulations to such church covenants is at best unhelpful and at worst a kind of legalism that substitutes itself for true holiness. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. So are covenants useful? And so this comes to the question of 
along the lines of taking obedience seriously, is it possible or right for us to establish a church covenant to make certain commitments? Timothy George makes this observation in his commentary on Galatians. One of the much neglected features of contemporary Baptist church life is the congregational covenant, an expression of communal commitment in responsibility, setting forth ethical standards and obligations incumbent upon or required of all members. Historically, Baptist church covenants have encouraged not only public worship, personal devotion, and congregational discipline, but also a caring and pastoral attitude on the part of each church member toward every other member. In this context, Galatians 6.2 has been frequently paraphrased in these historic documents. So if we're going to summarize all these things. Church covenants most likely originated with Puritans or adopted by Baptists shortly after, at least in this country. That would have been in response to the Reformation because there was no question of what the church was supposed to be and do in the Roman Catholic Church. It was all sort of defined from above, right? But now if you have independent churches that aren't always ruled by an ecclesiastical structure or hierarchical system, there's a question of what are we supposed to be? What are we supposed to do? What do we believe? And it's not dictated from above by the pope and the, and the priest and so forth. It's something that the local church has to agree upon. And I think that's sort of the historical backdrop of this. Secondly, church covenants had at least some close connection to covenant theology or at least to this idea that the church was the new Israel. Thirdly, church covenants have sometimes been misused, for example, to promote a kind of legalism. And fourth, church covenants could be useful tools in carrying out specific, uh, specific biblical commands, even if having a church covenant is not specifically required by Scripture. That would be the point that I'm making here. We could make the argument, and it's something we need to think about, we could make the argument that taking obedience seriously means we say practically what does that look like. And in the same way that we have a statement of faith that does not replace the New Testament, but summarizes it or serves as an introduction for further discussion of what the Bible says, it could be useful for us to have a church covenant that says what are the things we're supposed to do? We are aware of them, actively trying to do them, and reminding each other of them. Yes? In the Baptist church of that period of time, mm -hmm. did they all have the same standards for their covenant? How, how, you know, we're a Baptist church, there's another Baptist church down the street, do they have the same Right. So, that was one of the points I was doing some research on, and by no means was it exhaustive. Um, yeah. So, for example, in the church in the, I think it was the 1700s in America, there were questions of what constitute the ordinances and what practices ought to take place in the church. One of the points of controversy was should people be anointed with oil in the context of the church service? We wouldn't hold that as an ordinance of the church, but that was something that was very important. Laying on of hands and anointing with oil was seen as right up there with baptism and the Lord's table. Um, a second point of controversy was whether or not hymns should be sung in church. Should we only sing psalms or should we also sing hymns? And so I don't say that to say that we should or shouldn't sing hymns today. I'm just saying 
those were some of the issues where one church might have had one thing in their church covenant and another might have had something different depending on where they stood on those two issues. And then, you know, in more recent years, uh, it's kind of been all across the board in terms of what would be in a church covenant. You have to give a certain amount of money to the church. You have to, whatever sort of requirements there might be. I think the church covenant idea has fallen out of probably awareness is the best word in the last 50 years. Um, I think a lot of churches today don't pay much attention to what it says, may not even know what it says, don't keep it regularly before the, the eyes of their members. And so um, I, I think that probably the big push on church covenants would have been from like the 1700s to say the 1950s. And then in the last 50 to 70 years, there hasn't really been as much attention on it. So, so let's evaluate church covenants. Church covenants have come under criticism in recent years. The primary criticism has to do with number three above, this idea of church covenants being used for legalism. Um, particularly, there's this group of people who come from a fundamental or an independent church background who have left those churches and have sometimes kind of overreacted and said, you know, there were some things that these churches weren't doing right. Let's go to way extremes over here. And so they have been some of the loudest critics of things like uh, church covenants. And here are some of the criticisms from them or from others. And some of them are valid things to think about. Number one, church covenants repeat commands already found in Scripture. Number two, Church covenants promote a culture of authoritarian leaders or suspicious fellow members. Number three, covenants add extra-biblical requirements for church members. And number four, church covenants require a person to make an oath, vow, or solemn commitment. So let's evaluate these briefly. Regarding the issue of repetition, is repetition automatically bad? Is it wrong for us to paraphrase a section of Scripture for purposes of having it before our minds? So in our statement of faith, it does not consist of exact quotations of Scripture, right? But what it does have are summaries of biblical doctrines and ideas with Scripture references to support them, right? So the same criticism that here is being made of a church covenant could also be made of a statement of faith. Someone could come along and say, what do you need a statement of faith for? You've got the Bible, right? The irony of that is there have been people who don't believe the Bible who have tried to argue for the Bible as the standard of authority. This happened in some of the fundamentalist modernist controversies in the early 1900s. There were people who said, let's have a specific statement of doctrine and there were other people who came along and said, we have the New Testament, we don't need all that stuff. Why would they say that? Because they wanted to deny concepts like the virgin birth or like the necessity of certain things about the deity and humanity of Christ. And they felt like the easiest path to that was to make sure that those doctrines were not spelled out on a piece of paper that they had to sign. There could be a variety of motivations why a church would say we're not going to have a statement of faith, but I think that where we stand in church history, 
it is wise to have a statement of faith from the perspective of recognizing the controversies and issues that have come up in the past 2,000 years, marking off what our church believes in contrast to other churches, and making sure that when we say, well, the Bible says something, that we are in agreement about what that actually means, uh, particularly when it comes to what does salvation look like. So, is it wrong to repeat in a document that's not the Bible, biblical ideas? We do that in our hymnals, right? We do that in our statement of faith. And so perhaps there's a place for doing that in the context of a church covenant. I'll give you the example of what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.12. He says, you already know and are doing these things, but I want to encourage you to do them all the more. Paul says the same thing to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4.10, you're already doing and practicing love for one another. Excel still more. Keep doing it more. Second criticism, church covenants are tools used by authoritarian leaders or suspicious church members to force people to do what they want them to do. Well, Hebrews 13, 17 does have this idea that a congregation is under spiritual leadership and that those who are in authority in a church have a responsibility to watch out for the souls of those under their care. And so, practically speaking, how does someone know whether someone's soul is in a good state or not? I can't examine your soul with a microscope, right? It's, it's illustrated by external things which reflect our hearts. And so a statement of some of those external criteria of whether someone is a member doing the things a member ought to do, rightly related to God, is helpful for those who are in authority to say, is this person doing well? Is this person struggling? And the bottom line is, it's not, a, um, it's not as though having a church covenant means that it's just sort of this rigid thing, and I, I say, okay, Mike... He showed up to church, seems to be reading his Bible. All right, everything's good. I mean, it's not rigid and, and, and structured that way, but it's kind of a starting point for, is this person seem to be growing? Does this person seem to be following God? Or does this person seem to be drifting away from a close relationship with God and the rest of the church? And, and that's kind of in the right way how it could be used. With regard to, does it promote other church members to be suspicious? talked about this yesterday at the church picnic. It encourages me when someone says, so-and-so was gone, and I called them, and they had this thing going on, and I did this to help them, or, or they were really discouraged, and I shared this Bible verse with them. You know, that's, I think, the sort of thing that ought to be happening in the church. Like it says in Galatians 6, it talks about bearing one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Or in 1 Thessalonians 5, admonish the unruly, um, help the faint-hearted, encourage the weak. We know we have a responsibility to come alongside one another and help one another. And so sometimes I think people are, are concerned or hesitant or, or, or wary of these kind of things because they've been in a church where there wasn't a whole lot happening between the point of someone started to drift from the church 
and some big thing happen and they get kicked out of the church. And there should be a whole lot of things happening between those two points. And a lot of that is what you and I are doing for one another, right? We are concerned for one another's souls. And 80, 90% of the time, if someone's missing church, it's because they're sick. It's because they're traveling. There's a good reason for it. But if, they're, if that's the case, we can pray for them when they're traveling. We can pray for them when they're sick. We could take them a meal if they're going to be laid up for several weeks on end. If we don't ask the question, we don't have opportunity to minister in those ways. And that's not a culture of suspicion. That's just caring for one another in the same way that, that hopefully would take place in a family context. And so this criticism may be valid in some places. There are people who use the structures and documents of the church to manipulate people to do what they want. Yes? That one's going to be number three. We'll get to that one in just a second. This is more like, these are things that are in the Bible, but we're doing them with the wrong spirit or attitude or just because we're trying to have power over people under us. Or, if a church member, for example, didn't approach someone's absence with a loving attitude, they call them up and be like, you don't have Jesus, you weren't here on Sunday. Where's the problem there? It's with the person making the call. It's not with the person who wasn't there. I mean, there could be problems with both, but having a critical attitude, having a suspicious attitude, having an abuse of power kind of attitude, that's something that ultimately is going to happen if you're the wrong sort of person, regardless of the church document. And so we should be wise in what we put in the church document. We should recognize that people can be sinful with or without these kinds of things in place. All right, the third thing that Jim raised. Extra-biblical requirements. If there's a requirement in the church covenant that says you must give 20% of what you bring in to the church, that would go beyond the New Testament expectation of giving as God has blessed. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 16.2. The context is a special offering for the poor in Jerusalem, but the application, I think, applies to any money that we're giving to the church. As God blesses us, we give. When we are in a time of difficulty and trouble and are barely getting by, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 talks about this principle of there should be support and help from other people in that church or another church, that's what was happening with the Jerusalem church, the churches in Macedonia and Greece and so forth and Asia, they were sending money to help the church in Jerusalem. There could have been another period of time when God blessed the church in Jerusalem and these churches over here were in trouble. We had opportunity to uh, participate this in helping with Saji, right? So just these are examples of that would be an extra-biblical requirement. You have to give this percentage of money to the church to be in right standing with God. Do you see how that's a kind of legalism? Because our standing before God is not based on the specific number you write on a check. What we do with our money can reflect our hearts, but we're not more holy because the number we put on the check is bigger. All right. Other requirements. You must complete a membership class. You must never work on Sundays. You must attend every church service and event. These things could quickly turn to a kind of attitude that says, 
if I check off all these boxes, I'm in right standing with God. And that could have very little to do with the state of your heart. So that's where some of these things come in. There are trickier issues that we're going to talk about down the road. Uh, Piper raises one of them in his book. Um, and one of those is the question of um, whether or not some statement about alcohol and so forth should be in the church covenant. We're not going to touch that one today for sake of time, but it's something that we need to think about whether that is at the core of what the church covenant should express. Fourth objection to church covenants. Fourth objection to church covenants is this. You shouldn't make any promises or oaths. So, are there examples of promises or oaths that we make in the course of our lives in our world today? Okay, and we tend not to think of that as an oath. We tend to think of it as a, you know, I'll make it happen if I can. But that is a pretty serious commitment, okay? What else? Marriage, okay. Any other ones? Okay. What other ones? Uh, maybe if you're in a courtroom, do you have to make an oath? Yeah. Okay, good. Or certain political offices, right? So, is the swearing of oaths wrong? There are people in broad Christianity, loosely defined, who have said the swearing of all oaths is sinful. Why, why would they have that idea? What's that? Okay. What else? If you look at one of the passages that's in this paragraph, Matthew 5, it says that Jesus says, don't swear an oath by the temple or, or all these other things. Why did Jesus condemn the swearing of oaths in that way? What were the Jews doing? They were making oaths, but they weren't, weren't keeping them. I think the thing that God is condemning in that passage is not never swear an oath. It's don't take your commitments lightly. And when he says, let your yes be yes, your no be no, more than this leads to judgment, it's if you are dishonest in such a way that you have to constantly be saying, you know, it's God's truth. I'm telling you the truth this time. I'm not lying to you this time. What does that say about you? You're probably not being very honest the rest of the time, right? And so that, I think, is the main thing that's being condemned. Or what it says in the book of Ecclesiastes. If we recognize that promises, commitments that are made are in the sight of God, that's something that's serious. That's something that ought to be taken soberly and, and, and planned carefully. I think along those lines, a solemn promise ought to remind us of the soberness of the commitment and the thing to which we are committing should be attainable and realistic. I think it would be foolish to swear an oath. I, I'm going to wash the dishes every night after supper for the rest of my life. Are there a lot of things that could interfere with making a promise like that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. right, 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 yeah, yeah. That's true, that's true. But then, there, then we're getting into the attitude of we're, we're trying to find wiggle room. So 
in light of these criticisms of church covenants, it would be tempting to get rid of our church covenant. And it is something that we should ask ourselves. This is something that is not specifically required in Scripture. So technically, it's not something we have to have from that perspective. But assuming we have a church covenant, here's some things to think about. It is different from the authority of Scripture, though hopefully it reflects Scripture. In other words, if there was ever a conflict and someone says, you know what, this thing in the, co- in this, in the church covenant and this passage of Scripture don't seem to line up. Which one is the higher authority? The Word of God. Secondly, a church covenant at its best would be a tool to remind us of things we already ought to be doing. Caring for one another, carrying out the functions of the local church, and something to be a regular part of church life. So a church covenant that's something that you sign when you join the church and don't look at for 20 years is not doing its job. Thirdly, it ought to be simple and clear so we know what we're committing to. Along the lines of other covenants commitments that are made, think about your wedding vows. I was thinking about that in connection with this whole discussion. Could you recite your wedding vows on the spot right now? Yeah, right. So, right, you remember that phrase, right? But I don't know that most of us, or at least all of us, couldn't say it word for word. Would we potentially be in a better place in our marriages if we reviewed the promises and commitments that we had made? Probably. I mean, it would help us to at least think about the seriousness of what we've committed to. Right. And in the same way, a church covenant could serve a similar function. There is not a biblical requirement to make vows to each other in the context of a wedding ceremony. There's no chapter and verse that says that. But having done that, these are promises and commitments we ought to uphold. In the same way, there is not a biblical requirement to make a church covenant. But if we have a church covenant, it ought to be something that we consider regularly, strive to uphold, not because it's replacing the truth of Scripture, but rather because it's reminding us that when we join a church, it's different from having a Costco membership. Costco membership, you're like, you know what, it's too expensive, I'm done with it. They don't have the things that I like on the shelves this month. That's not the attitude we come to church with. The attitude we should come to church with is, unless there is a very serious and sober reason for leaving the assembly, this is my family, this is my home, this is what I'm committed to. And so I think in that respect, a church covenant can be a useful tool to remind us of the seriousness of what we're a part of. Not a burdensome obligation, not a legalistic kind of thing, but hey, this is something we're a part of, this is something we've committed to, so let's do what we're supposed to do. So, hopefully that's some helpful background. Next week I want us to think through these points of criticism in light of our present church covenant and see if there are any areas that specifically we would need to think through in our current church covenant. 
and then down the road we'll take some time looking at other church covenants and, and just all of these ideas, develop them a little bit further. So let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to have gathered this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to consider truths that are tied in with a lot of other important ideas. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to do things for the right reasons, not just to do them because we've always done them, not just to do them because we feel like they would be a good idea. Lord, to be very careful that we never do things in contradiction of your word or with higher authority than your word, because that would be wrong. But rather, Lord, that you would help us to uphold your word and be reminded of what you have called us to be and do. Pray that you bless the service in a few moments. In Christ's name, amen.